Well, I invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. Last time we looked at just really verse 4 and talked about how verse 4 begins a new section of Genesis that runs through to the end of chapter 4. And today we're going to actually begin to get into this section in more detail. And as we do, we will see today the creation of the first man, Adam. So the the creation of the first woman is going to come later in chapter 2. We've already had the overview statement from chapter 1 that God created man, male and female. He created them. He did so in his likeness and image. But now we're getting into some more details about this. And so as we consider the person of Adam, the first man, over the next few weeks, it is important to bear a couple of things in mind. It is clear in Scripture that Adam stood as a representative of humanity. Uh, That this is the correct way of reading and understanding Genesis is made explicit, is made very plain in other places like Romans chapter 5 and the text we read from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, Adam was the head of all humanity, and as Adam went, so would go all who come after him. And this, of course, is in the, in the passage that we read earlier and in, uh, if, and in Romans 5 as well. Uh, this is contrasted with Christ. Christ is the head of the new humanity, the new creation of all those who are saved. Uh, because, of course, as we know, Adam would go on to fail and all in him would die. All in him would be brought into death and, and made sinners in and through Adam. And so it is in Christ that all are made alive, those who will be. So it is important, obviously, to bear in mind as we consider Adam that there is a certain uniqueness to him and to his calling and to what he was doing and what he was to be about. Uh, You and I are not in the Garden of Eden, uh, obviously, and there is not a tree of knowledge of good and evil that you and I are not to eat of and could if we rebelled or or what have you. These things are specific to Adam. His representation of us affects us, but we are not in his place. There's uniqueness to him. But also as the first man, there is much about Adam's creation, about what Adam was called to do and about his duties that do set forth and tell us about our purpose as human beings. And so there is much here as well that does instruct us about our own purpose and our own design. And as we'll see, I think particularly as we continue through the next few weeks, the better we understand Adam, the better we will understand God's purpose for mankind in general and for us as individuals, and the better we will also understand the work that the Lord Jesus Christ has done in coming to save. And so we're going to look at these things over the next few weeks as we work our way through this section But today we're going to focus on verses 4 to 14 of chapter 2. So let's read that together. Genesis 2, beginning in verse 4. We'll actually read through to 17, but then we're really just going to cover up to 14 in the sermon. So Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no bush of the field was yet in the land, 
And no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedelium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Many are familiar, I suspect many of us are familiar with the first question of the Westminster Catechism. The question says, what it, or asks, what is the chief end of man? Or what is the chief goal? What is the chief end of man? Answer, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. I'm sure at least some variation of those words would be familiar to, to you. And that man has been made to worship God and so glorify him is precisely what we find in Genesis chapter 2. As we consider these words before us, the formation of Adam and God's placing him in this Garden of Eden, we see that man was made in order to serve and worship God. So again, we will look at verses 4 to 14 today, examining God's creation of Adam, placing him in the garden. And the next week, we'll look in further detail at what all was involved in that work that God had given to Adam, uh, what more specifically he was to be doing as we look at verses 15 to 17. So what we see then here is that man was indeed created in order to serve and worship God. And the first thing I want us to notice, first point of our outline as we go through verses 4 to 14, that Adam was created with the capacity to serve and worship God. He was created with the capacity to serve and worship God. What I mean is that God created Adam with all the necessary faculties in order to be able to worship God rightly. He's created the way he is, the way he was created, so that he might fulfill this function. He's given what he's needed in his person. He was created with both the natural and the spiritual ability to fulfill his duties, to worship God. So let's uh, read again verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. As we said last time, these verses stand as a heading to this next section that runs through to the end of chapter 4, in which we are now told of what became 
of God's creation that we looked at in chapter 1 and through to chapter 2, verse 3. And in this section, it begins by backing up to day 6 of creation, in which God created man. It zooms in on that day, giving us further details about it. This is not an uncommon technique in the scriptures. We see this in Revelation. We see this in the book of Isaiah. It is sometimes called recapitulation or resumptive technique where a prophet will lay something out and then back up and go over some of that ground again, perhaps giving some new details and some new information. And that's precisely what we have here in chapter two is backing up to day six and giving us more details about God's creation of man. But before chapter 2 mentions God's forming of Adam in verse 7, we have two verses that are a little bit confusing, can be a little bit tricky. So let's continue verse 5. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and the mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground, then the Lord God formed the man. So we have here the setting for the formation of man and the timing of it. And it might, to some, seem like this contradicts what we read in chapter 1. In chapter 1, we see vegetation, trees, and plants yielding seeds spring up. They are created in day 3. And that's, of course, prior to the creation of man, which comes on day 6. But then some get to verse 5 here in chapter 2, and it looks like maybe it's saying that man was created before bushes and plants. So it might seem like it's a little bit different or it's contradictory. And this is how liberals, they will pounce upon this apparent contradiction and demand that this, the conclusion that these are two different contradictory creation accounts that have just kind of been uh, slapped together here at the start of Genesis. In fact, that's not at all the necessary conclusion. And I would just encourage you, every time you hear those sorts of claims, ask yourself, is that a necessary conclusion? Is that the necessary thing we must conclude? That this is a contradictory account, the two different accounts that are slapped together? And of course, the answer is no. That's not the necessary conclusion to this. However, it is a difficult couple of verses. It's difficult to know precisely what this is getting at, and we find that Christians, Bible-believing Christians and scholars, interpreters, have a couple of different ways that people have come to understand this. So I'll just give to you what I think is the best way to understand what Moses is saying here. Moses is telling us in verse 5 that there was a lack of a particular kind of of plant and bush when Adam was created. Namely, what was lacking were the kinds of plants that depend on rain and man to work the ground. So he he gives here the reason for these plants being absent. He says, for, the reason they're not there, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work or to cultivate the ground. So what was not yet existing was this particular kind of shrub or plant. It's a plant of the field, namely the cultivated field. He's talking about farm plants, I would suggest. 
In chapter 3, when God is pronouncing a curse upon man because of sin, it says there, and you shall eat the plants of the field. That's the same phrase that had not yet existed when Adam was created. You shall eat the plants of the field. It says, verse 19, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. So that the plant of the field reference there is something that you would then make bread out of. It's grain, it's farm plants cultivated by man. And so I think that's the kind of plant that was not yet in existence here in chapter 2. Further, Moses is telling us, I think, it's right to see it this way, not about the condition of the earth as a whole, but in verse 5, he's telling us about a specific area of it, namely the area of land that would become this Garden of Eden. This is where the rest of the chapter begins to focus in and, and where these events take place. And so the purpose then here is to draw us back to day six. Yes, God had created trees and seed-bearing plants, but there were not yet cultivated fields because man has not yet been created, nor is there rain. It says God was watering this land with a mist that was coming up from the ground. So it is at this time, we are told in verse seven, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. So there's two aspects to this creation of man. The first is the formation of man from the dust of the ground. Adam's body is here created, his physical body. The word here that's used is interesting. It is the word for formation. And it is a formation out of dust. If you remember... Um, in, in chapter 1, God speaks and times just creates things. He creates the universe, for example, out of nothing. There was nothing. God speaks and brings the universe into being. But here the picture seems to be that of a potter molding clay into a form. Man is said to be formed from the dust of the earth. Many would point to the humility of this. It is true that man is the apex of God's creation, as we saw in previous weeks. And yet man is formed out of the dust of the earth. If you consider how it is that man tends to exalt himself over and against God Almighty, even in Adam and Eve's first sin, seeking to be like God, they're What God has given to them and their station is not sufficient. They like more. This tendency among sinful men, very great to exalt ourselves. And yet how wildly inappropriate is this? We are of the dust. We are nothing in comparison to the Almighty. So we have here Adam's physical frame formed from the ground, but it's lifeless initially. It's just laying there. It's just there. It's a body, but there's more required. So we have the second aspect of man's creation. In the second part, it says, And God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. The words that are used here, breath of life and living creature, they could simply be saying that God here 
uh, turned the, the power on, if you will. He just made Adam come alive, just as animals were walking around, living and breathing, had breath of life in them, just as they are said to be living creatures in chapter 1, verse 20. Uh, so too, the same thing happened here with man. Uh, he received these same kinds of qualities. Certainly, it could simply be saying that, but there are good reasons to understand that this is suggesting something more than that is going on here. We've already seen, again, in chapter 1, that man is the, the apex, the crowning achievement, if you will, of God's creation. Uh, he, he gives the earth to man to, to rule over as God's vice regent. They're made, man is, in God's image and likeness. There's a uniqueness to man that has already been established in Genesis chapter 1. And nowhere else do we have the creation of animals described in this same way with this kind of detail and explanation. Uh, that God breathed into their nostrils something special and unique, this breath of life. The reality is the immaterial part of humanity, of man, the soul or the spirit, a reality that is very clearly taught and attested throughout the scriptures, is something that is very different from the animals. And so when did Adam receive this soul of his? When did he receive this unique aspect? Well, I would suggest it's right here. That God breathed into Adam this breath of life and Adam was completed. It is true, as with other creatures and animals, the power was switched on, so to speak, and he could literally breathe and walk around. But also this unique immaterial part of Adam, Adam's soul, was also now present. And as such, Adam was now, as both body and soul, he was duly fitted for the task of serving and worshiping his God. He was created with everything necessary in order to do this. He was created upright. He was able to receive and trust the word of God. He was able to commune with God as he had the faculty of understanding. He had ability to process information rightly. And he had a body in which he could hear God a mouth with which he could speak to God. And he had a body in which he could go about the duties that God had called him to. He possessed the natural and he possessed the spiritual ability to serve and worship God. Man is created, body and soul. And as will become clear, this is for the purpose then of serving and worshiping God. That's the end for which this creation occurs. Again, we will look more next week at Adam's specific task that was put before him. But we are reminded here first that before that task is given to him, he was outfitted for that task. He was given the ability to do it. Today, despite living on this side of Genesis 3 and man's fall into sin, it is still true that mankind is body and soul. And that the purpose has not changed, that we are meant to serve and worship God. 
Mankind's problem on this side of the fall is not that all of these natural faculties are entirely erased or wiped out, but the problem is that we have a spiritual inability to use these faculties to fulfill our God-given role and to fulfill their God-given purpose. We are corrupted by sin. Consider that sinful man still exercises trust at times. We trust certain people. We trust other drivers on the highway and on the road that they're not going to swerve into you. We still learn. We still listen to certain people. We still do work in the bodies God has given to us. But sinful man will not direct these faculties to the worship of God because the will of man is in bondage to sin. We do not desire to direct ourselves to our proper end that is apart from a work of God's grace in the heart. And when that grace works in the heart, we realize these capacities that God has given to us to think, to process, to hear, our body and soul. They are given to us for the ultimate purpose of worshiping and serving our God. We understand now, if we are in Christ, if God has done this work of grace in our hearts, that it is good and right to use these gifts, our bodies, who we are, to live unto our God and Savior, to serve Him all of our days with our minds, our bodies, our souls, everything that we are, that this is the appropriate end of mankind. As we consider Adam in the garden, he was created, he was at liberty to obey. As we know, he had the possibility within himself of sinning, but he was certainly not under any constraint to do so. He had no imprisoned will. He was created, body and soul, to worship God and given all the faculties necessary for that end. Secondly, Adam was richly supplied with all the externals he needed to serve and worship God. Adam was not only physically, spiritually, mentally capable of serving and worshiping God, he was also placed in a garden paradise to do so. Uh, look at verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man who had, whom he had formed. So this would suggest that God created man outside of the garden and then places him inside of that garden that he made. This garden was a special creation, also by God himself. He planted it. He caused these trees that were within it to spring up. Verse 9 tells us this. Out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Notice that it is filled with many and various trees. It is not just one tree. He could have just made one tree that was sufficient to provide. 
but he makes many trees, various trees. And there are two comments about these trees, that they are pleasant to the sight and they were good for food. So notice also they are both beautiful and functional. They look pleasing and they supplied Adam with food. And I, I think there's something in that worth reflecting on, that God didn't just create something that was functional for Adam here, but something that was also beautiful to the eyes, that would wow the senses. He's a God of true beauty. Uh, verse 9 continues. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So he's mentioned a number of trees, and now we have these two trees specifically. Now, I realize that this is going to disappoint some, but we're actually going to address these trees and their purpose next week. We're going to defer that when we get into verses 15 to 17. Hopefully it'll be worth the, the wait. And hopefully it'll make sense then. But let's continue to look at the rest of this garden. For now, just note these trees are present. Verse 10. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. This habitation that God made for Adam was a well-watered one, we're told. It had a river flowing out from Eden, which then, we're told, divides into four rivers. And the rivers provided water for this land. Trees could flourish on its shores. And this vital component to life, water, was everywhere, was in good supply here for Adam and for his offspring. We're told also here about precious metals and stones that were there, gold, delium, onyx. Again, the place was beautiful and it lacked nothing that was necessary for Adam. It is for good reason that we often speak of this as paradise. It's also because in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the word for garden is the word from which we get paradise. But it is also really truly describing what we would think of as paradise. It is beautiful and it supplies Adam with what he needs. We naturally, as we read this, I think, wonder, where is the location of this garden? Where was this? But in short, we simply cannot be certain. Uh, we are, after all, talking about a lo the location of something that existed prior to the earth-altering flood that we read of in Genesis 6 through 9. That alone, I think, should keep us from being too dogmatic about where we might have found the Garden of Eden. So much of Earth's surface would have changed during that time, which we'll talk more of later. But addition, in addition to that, uh, Ken Ham, if you're familiar with him, he points out that 
Underneath the region where we see the modern-day Euphrates and Tigris rivers, there is fossil-bearing strata, which would have been laid down during the flood. So it doesn't seem likely that the modern, current Euphrates and Tigris rivers are the rivers mentioned here, since they were evidently formed after the flood, if the fossil strata is underneath those rivers. So we might wonder why would they be named that? Well, it's possible, quite possible, that Noah's sons, after the flood, and his offspring, at some point named the two rivers, Euphrates and Tigris, after the original rivers that flowed out of Eden. Just as we know, there are rivers and cities in North America named after rivers and cities in the UK from people who came over here from there and named these things after their homeland. At the same time, while we can't be certain, Moses does write of these places as if his readers might know of them. And so perhaps, perhaps, he is suggesting that it was in the region of the modern-day Euphrates and Tigris rivers, which is a very large region also, even though it is not exactly as it would have been in the pre-flood world. But again, in the end, we simply can't be certain. But I would suggest to you also that the more important question here is not where was this, but what was this? What was this garden? And the point making now is that it was a beautiful paradise that richly supplied Adam with his external needs to accomplish his task to the Lord. Except we know of one other thing that is coming later that Adam still lacked. And that, of course, is his wife, Eve. just want to make sure to stress that. This garden reveals God's kindness and goodness to his creatures, namely to man. It is not just, here's the earth, here's some commands, good luck subduing it. Rather, it's here is a garden paradise for a starting place, well supplied with all you need, even beautiful to the eyes in which Adam would walk with God. As we think of Adam as our representative, I think it is important to realize that he had every advantage. It will highlight and even add to the grievousness of Adam's eventual fall into sin, the grievousness of sin itself. But if we would be tempted to resent Adam for it, knowing that in him... We are fallen now too. I would encourage you to consider your own sin. The times that you have knowingly sinned against God, knowing it was wrong and doing it anyway. To consider all the good things that God has supplied to you in this life, ultimately for the purpose of serving and worshiping Him and giving Him glory. Using those things to such ends as His service. And yet how often... You have instead proved ungrateful, selfish in the use of those things, using them for your own glory and your own ends. We are guilty of sin as well. And besides this, rather than being tempted to be resentful, maybe, towards Adam or towards God for this, understand that the last Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, has come and obeyed the Father perfectly and has overcome what the first Adam has wrought, and seek your refuge in him. 
the one who brings many sons to glory, a greater glory even than that of Eden. And then let us endeavor to use all the external aids that God has given to us, that are of comfort to us, the good gifts he gives ultimately to serve our God and to gratefully seek him, our Savior, all our days. The third and final point in our outline, one more observation about Adam's environment, this garden, is that Adam was placed in the first temple to serve and worship God. He was given, he was created with the capacity to serve and worship God. He was given everything external to himself that he needed to serve and worship God, and he was placed in the first temple to serve and worship God. Now, you might think, I don't recall reading anything about a temple in Genesis chapter 2. And certainly, you did not read about a literal temple as we would think of a temple. It's like the later temple, uh, Solomon's temple. But nevertheless, I believe it is right for us to view Eden as a garden temple, as the first sanctuary of God. There is language throughout Genesis chapters 1 through 3 that suggests that this is the case and from things we find elsewhere later in Scripture. So what I've been saying here all along is that Adam's creation had purpose to it well beyond just subduing earth and doing some gardening and doing some tilling. And, and we'll see more next time. Adam was in a covenant with God. And his labor was to include guarding the purity of God's worship and the purity of God's sanctuary. The garden is not merely a nice starting point for Adam. It is not merely a beautiful and functional base of operations for him and his offspring. It is a place where Adam, and soon we'll see Eve, walked with God and enjoyed communion with God the Creator. It was a, the particular place of God's special residence on the earth. And so it is rightly viewed then as a garden temple. So I just want to flesh this out a little bit more. And in so doing, I think this will also set us up well for what we will see and cover next week. Here's what one writer, it's a man by the name of Gordon Wenham. He's written a helpful commentary on Genesis that has been useful to me. He writes this in a different work, but he says this. The Garden of Eden is not viewed by the author of Genesis simply as a piece of Mesopotamian farmland, but as an archetypal sanctuary. That is, a place where God dwells and where man should worship him. Many of the features of the garden may also be found in later sanctuaries, particularly the tabernacle or Jerusalem temple. These parallels suggest that the garden itself is understood as a sort of sanctuary. And so I want to just consider some of the features found in Eden that are also found in later sanctuaries. And so... We're going to go through a few here, and I'm, I'm borrowing some of this from uh, what Wenham himself has said, but it's not unique to him, um, but, but definitely just want to acknowledge that I'm borrowing some of this from him. And I'm going to list a number of, of things, a number of similarities between Eden and the later sanctuaries, uh, the tabernacle and the temple. And, and any one of these on their own, we might say, ah, maybe, 
I'm maybe not be totally convinced, but I think when we put them all together, I find it to be fairly, well, well, very compelling. I think it's how we ought to view it. Overwhelming, I would even say. You can decide, but. So first, Eden and the later sanctuaries were entered from the east. So in Genesis chapter 3, verse 24, it tells us after Adam and Eve were expelled from Eden, that the cherubim were placed at the east of the Garden of Eden to guard the way to the tree of life. Later sanctuaries, likewise, were entered from the east. This includes the tabernacle. And if you remember Ezekiel's vision of a temple in Ezekiel 47, that too, we're told, faced east. The entrance was to the east. Second, both Eden and later sanctuaries were guarded by cherubim. So I just quoted from from, uh, Genesis 3.24, after the fall, in which Adam and Eve were no longer permitted into the garden. They're banned from it. And at the entrance of God's garden, two cherubim were placed. And they were guarding the way to the tree of life. Then, later on, when the tabernacle was built, and then later the temple we find cherubim embroidered all over the place. Cherubim embroidered on the curtains, cherubim embroidered on doorposts. Also, in the Holy of Holies, there were two large wooden, they were built with wood and then overlaid with gold, two large cherubim. You can read about this in 1 Kings chapter 6, beginning in verse 23. They were 10 cubits high, which is 15 feet tall. And their wingspan of each one was also 15 feet. And the wing of one touched the wing of the other. And then the far wings touched the walls. So the whole of the inner sanctuary had this giant cherubim over them, guarding the entrance, if you will, covering it. You couldn't miss it if you went in there. So you've come through the curtain that has cherubim. There's doorposts with cherubim, giant cherubim when you enter. And then on the Ark of the Covenant, overshadowing the mercy seat, what do we have but two more cherubim? These are angelic beings who guard the way into God's inner sanctuary, into God's inner presence, his holy place. And that's what's being guarded when Adam and Eve are banned from the garden. Thirdly, the temple was adorned with arboreal decorations, things like trees and flowers, similar to a garden. Again, 1 Kings chapter 6, you can read of that. Uh, After it talks of the creation of the giant cherubim, it talks about the cherubim on the posts, on the doorposts and on the, uh, on the curtains as well. What else do we find there? But flowers and trees. Again, this is garden imagery. Further, others argue, this may or may not be true, but that the menorah, the lampstand in the, holy, in the, in the temple, symbolizes the tree of life. So there's a reasonable take on that. Fourth, Golden onyx, we read about that in Genesis chapter 2, 11 to 12. We find golden onyx were in the Garden of Eden. These are also used frequently 
in decorations of the later sanctuaries and the priestly garments. Almost everything in a temple was overlaid with gold. And you can also read in Exodus 25, verse 7, about how onyx stones were used on the priest's ephod and breastpiece. Fifth, Genesis chapter 2, verse 10, as we read, tells us that a river flowed out of Eden. This suggests that Eden was an elevated place, possibly to be viewed as a mountain of some sort. Not a rocky mountain as we might think of it, but certainly an elevated place. Water runs downhill. It would run away from an elevated place. The temple we know was built on Mount Zion. Even in Ezekiel's vision, in in Ezekiel 47, the glorious temple there has a river flowing out of the east-facing temple. Mountains are commonly associated with God's presence in the scriptures. Think Sinai, a very unique uh, revealing of God and his presence. Further, Ezekiel 29, 14 tells us, calls Eden the holy mountain of God. That's a text that's a little bit hard. It's addressed to the king of Tyre, but seems to be speaking about Satan. Uh, Leaving that question mark for just a moment, it says, You were in Eden, the garden of God. And then it goes on to list a bunch of fine gems and stones. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. Eden's likened there to the call, the holy mountain of God. Sixthly, this is the last one, and I would argue the most compelling. And it's something we will see more next week. But in chapter 2, verse 15, Adam is put in Eden, we're told, to work it and keep it. And these are two words that are used together elsewhere only to describe the Levites' work in the tabernacle. So the phrasing of Adam's task in the garden is then applied to the Levites' task in the tabernacle. You can see that, for example, in Numbers 3, 7 and 8. So all that to say, the Garden of Eden is a temple sanctuary. And therefore, Adam, he is not only a vice-regent of God, viewed in a kingly role, but he also has a priestly function. He's a priestly figure. His role is about so much more than physical gardening and working the ground. It is serving and worshiping God in God's sanctuary. And that work includes guarding and keeping the worship of God pure. This is, consider why he, they're expelled. It is not for bad gardening or neglect of physical, the physical garden. They have allowed sin, brought sin into God's inner sanctuary. That's the issue. That's primarily what Adam was to guard and to safekeep. The correct response for Adam was to crush the head of the serpent. He did not guard the garden. So man was created to serve and worship God. We see this from the very beginning. We were made upright in God's image, created body and soul 
possessing all the faculties necessary for the task. Moreover, the Garden of Eden provided everything Adam would need. And man was placed into that garden sanctuary, there to walk with and to serve God. And again, we will pick up Adam's task more next week. But we know, obviously, Adam failed in this. And in him, the world was plunged into sin. And the Bible is clear that it is the Lord Jesus Christ, the last Adam, who reconciles God to man. And through his salvation, man is enabled once again to serve and worship God rightly. And if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you not only will do this all of your earthly days, but then in glory, the new Jerusalem, the ultimate sanctuary in which nothing unclean will ever enter it. And it is Christ alone who takes us there, who redeems sinners fallen in Adam. And so, again, believe in him. Place your hope and trust in him alone. If you have not, confess your sins to God. Repent of your sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, lest you die in your sins and perish in Adam. As we read earlier, by a man, Adam, came death. By a man, Christ, has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Our great need is to be in Christ Jesus through faith. We are made to worship God. In Adam, we are fallen. We do not fulfill this function. But in Christ, we are redeemed and enabled again to serve and to worship our God. So offer yourself to him, believer. Offer yourself to him as living sacrifices. Serve him in whatever station he has you. In your home, at your workplace, in your free time, in your schooling, however old you may be. And certainly, worship him in our gathering. And in everything, relying on the grace of our God, looking to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do give you thanks for your word. We thank you for revealing to us the purpose of all things and the purpose of our own existence even. Father, we thank you that as we read of this account of Adam and his failure and his sin and the resulting curse of sin, that it need not end in despair. As your word also reveals to us your grace and mercy. Father, I pray that each person would lay hold of that by faith, believing in your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you that in Christ Jesus we are reconciled to you and are now called to serve you, to worship you. Father, I pray that this would not sound burdensome to us,
but that we would recognize this is good, this is the, the goal, this is the purpose of our creation. And Father, we lament that we fail often in our service and worship of you. And so we thank you again for your grace to us in Christ. And thank you for your promise to keep those in Christ to the end. We thank you for the promise of the resurrection of all who are in Christ Jesus. That we can look ahead and look forward to the day when we will be with you in glory. Never again to sin. But to serve and to worship you eternally in perfection. Father, all of that is to your, the, the praise of your glorious grace. For if it was just on our own, we would simply be dead in Adam. And so we praise you and give you thanks, encourage your people with all of these things. Help us, God, make it our greatest desire and more consistently our greatest desire to offer ourselves to you willingly each day. So we pray all of these things in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.